These are the oldest stories, online at oldeststories.net. With the defeat of Mari and the crushing of rebellions in Mari and Eshnuna, the story of Hammurabi's reign pretty much ends. The decade from 1759 to 1750 sees very little military activity aside from the crushing of an occasional tribal neighbor and has much less historical detail anyway thanks to the end of the Mari Library, our main source for Hammurabi's life. This doesn't mean that nothing was happening, but it does mean that what did happen was smaller, more internally focused, more peaceful, and most of all, less well-recorded for posterity. Probably early in this decade, the famous law code was written down, though as has been mentioned, this likely contained very few new laws, and is thought to have been mostly a codification of existing legal precedent. Aside from that, there was construction, trade, religious worship, and the daily routines of a peaceful life. With the return of peace, year names and official inscriptions from the last decade of Hammurabi's life record that Hammurabi built a large number of very impressive temples, canals, and other projects, including rebuilding some of the walls that had been destroyed in the wartime years. But of course, Hammurabi himself built none of these structures. They were constructed at his order by armies of laborers and craftsmen, men who have been almost invisible in our story thus far. Economically, we can divide Babylonian society up quite similarly to how it was divided in previous eras. At the top are the nobles and wealthy landowners, and in a parallel position at the top are the priests who have their own internal hierarchy. Beneath the upper caste are the food providers, the farmers and pastoralists, as well as, in some cases, the merchant class, though merchants seem to have been accorded different levels of respect in different times and places. If you could not be a farmer or herdsman, then you drop down another level to that of laborer, and while a skilled craftsman could rise to command a fair bit of respect, the life of laborers in general was perhaps the most unsettled and uncertain of all. Beneath the laborers, of course, were the women and slaves, but more on them in a bit. It is sadly very difficult to say what portion of the population belonged to each grouping at any given time, but we can say that in the prosperous times, dedicated laborers came to form a very large population, undertaking many tasks in the complex economies of the Middle Bronze Age. Laborer was a broad category, and people tended to specialize in certain tasks, whether as simple as bricklayer or water carrier, or as complex as coppersmith or boatwright. Technically, a scribe is sometimes counted as a type of laborer, and many of them may have come from laborer classes, but in many ways they're their own class, somewhere between farmer and noble, and deserve to be examined separately. For the lower laborers, it isn't always clear how they were organized. We intuitively assume that some may have organized into small companies, say as a group who built houses for people or a smith with his own shop. But for the most part, what we have evidence for is itinerant laborers being hired for a set period of time, often in an institutional context. The worker would often receive a tiny amount of silver and enough food for a single person for the duration of the contract. And when the contract was up, they would be left with very little savings to tide them over until the next job could be found. 
wages for general labor were set in Hammurabi's code at five or six grains of silver per day, with 180 grains making up a shekel, so a shekel per month, more or less. It is, however, an open question the extent to which prices in the code were legally enforced or just generally recommended. For the most part, laborers are hard to study because they went where the work was, on large projects often living at the job site. And whether they could have even afforded to keep families in the way we usually understand them is not always clear. A smith may have gone from a contract with the palace to construct weapons, to a small job at a wealthy farm to repair farm implements, to assisting in construction at a temple, and tracking him from place to place 3,500 years later is essentially impossible. A bricklayer would have had a similar, though harder, life, possibly changing jobs from contract to contract when bricklayers were less demanded than, say, water haulers, ditch diggers, or farm assistants, with each job paying just enough to survive. If anything, the success of Hammurabi's three years of warfare may have made the common laborer's lot even harder, because for many of his desired contracts, he would have been competing with slaves, and the influx of war captives likely pushed many free men out of low-end jobs, even as more construction projects were being created by the new wealth that plunder and unification brought to Babylonia. Some historians have suggested that since the price of labor doesn't seem to have fallen very much in the existing records, the burst of new construction may have evened out with the influx of war captives. But there remains the possibility that the price was simply fixed, to a greater or lesser extent, by the economic price-fixing laws of Hammurabi's code, meaning that a change in the amount of free labor demanded could well have been equalized by an increase in unemployment, which would be invisible to us due to the patchy surviving records. All in all, the laborer class is, by its nature, fairly opaque. They were free, illiterate, and highly mobile, including moving to different professions and sometimes even acquiring enough property to become farmers. The tale of Sargon the Great, rising from the son of a gardener to emperor of the world, was well remembered in this time, though a positive change in a man's life required ambition, competence, and the blessings of the gods, and was not so common in practice, even where possible in theory. Below the laborer was the slave, of which there were many in ancient Mesopotamia. Not as many as would characterize the Neo-Babylonian Empire and the much later Romans, Hammurabi's Babylon was still mostly built by free men, but there were enough slaves that it was a ubiquitous feature of life throughout the region. Slaves were separated into male and female, with each being assigned different tasks, and could come into slavery one of three ways. Many slaves were simply born into it, Typically, if the mother was a slave, any children she produced would also be property of the master, in much the same way that the owner of a date palm owns the fruits of that tree as well. Another version of being born into it is being sold by your father while still a child, either in payment of debts or for a fixed sum, usually fairly small since children were worth less than adults.
A free man in a city could be taken into slavery should his own debts become too large and he runs out of eligible family members to sell. And while it's disputed exactly how many debt slaves there were in Babylon at any given point, the number seems to have been quite high. It may have been quite common for poor laborers, for example, to fall into slavery as a result of hard times. The final source of slaves, a major one now with the victorious period of war now concluded, was war captives. Not every captive became a slave. Some would be executed, though summary execution seems less common in Hammurabi's time than in previous ages, likely because the government now had the capacity to handle far more prisoners than they once could. Many would be ransomed, and it appears that a formal ransoming system existed, at least among the Babylonians, since Hammurabi's code lays out explicitly a hierarchy of who is responsible for securing the ransom of a captive. It seems Babylonian merchants would travel to the city holding the prisoners and lay out the initial capital required to ransom each man at a standard price, about the same as the sale price of a slave, 20 shekels. The merchant would be reimbursed by the family upon his return to Babylon, and if the family couldn't afford it, then the temple of the city god would do it, and if that failed, then the ruler of the city would handle the matter as a public service. Additionally, among the women, a certain portion of them would be married off. The degree to which the new brides consented to this arrangement is unclear, but it would save them from outright legal slavery. Here, too, a fee was paid approximately equivalent to the purchase of a slave. But despite this, or perhaps because other places didn't consider prisoner ransoming a civic duty, the majority of war captives would be put into prison camps. The inhabitants of these prison camps would be sent out on essentially the same duties that the citizen labor levies were sent on, except that their term of service was indefinite. Slaves who were surplus to requirements would be sold off in small batches. It seems that Hammurabi may have been aware that releasing all of them into the market at once risked crashing the price of slaves and damaging the economy. The Babylonian state appears to have had an insatiable demand for labor, though, apparently using these captured prisoners, gangs of slaves, hired laborers, and citizen labor levies year-round for civic projects. They might have had slavery, but at least there may not have been too much unemployment during the good years. A final source of slaves was slave raids. While these are far less common than they were back in the Sumerian and Akkadian periods, we hear almost nothing about Amorite governments undertaking such raids specifically for the small rewards of a bit of slaves and livestock like in the early Bronze Age, they still occurred out on the fringes of civilization and were sold sometimes through a chain of intermediaries into more civilized areas. However the slave became a slave, it was a fact of life that they would be bought and sold, usually for somewhere between 15 and 30 shekels, or about five years of a free laborer's wages, and that they would live as property of another person for the rest of their life, with fairly limited opportunities for freedom. For a male slave, their lot in life would honestly not be all that different from a free laborer's. In some ways, it could be considered better, since they could count on being fed, clothed, and housed reliably, and the working conditions were harsh for free and slave alike. 
an enslaved craftsman would typically be more highly valued and treated with nicer perks, just as a free craftsman could hope to earn more income than a laborer. However, slavery was never a desirable condition for any but the most destitute, and beyond the indignity of being treated like a possession, often being listed in household inventories alongside tables and jewelry, there was always the chance of arbitrary beatings, being denied a family, or perhaps worse, being allowed a family only to have it torn apart later. Hammurabi's code contains penalties for injuring or killing a slave, but these are only applied when someone other than the master injures the slave, since it's the equivalent to damaging another man's property. A master can injure, cripple, or kill his own slave with no recourse, possibly not even much social censure. It was not the harshest form of slavery ever invented, and many Babylonian slaves may have managed to find a measure of contentment in their lives, but it was still a profoundly undesirable existence. Slaves wore a distinctive hairstyle called a buttum, and shaving the slave lock off would cost the shaver his hand. Some may have also been branded or worn clay tags chained or pierced to the body, though we don't have clear translations for all the ancient words surrounding the slave trade. Despite these enduring signifiers of slave status, escape attempts were common. Assisting a runaway was discouraged by law with threat of death, and returning an escapee was rewarded by law with a two-shekel bounty. Perhaps of interest is that Hammurabi's code specifies no penalty to the slave itself for escaping, presumably since the master could punish his property however he desired, from beatings to imprisonment to torture to murder. Besides, many slaves simply had nowhere to run to, being too far away from where they came from or with their homeland now conquered, and houseborn slaves had never known any other life in the first place. For some reason that isn't completely clear, it seems that the number of runaways during the few decades of Hammurabi's Golden Age and into the first years of his successor saw a marked decrease in the number of escape attempts. Whether life was simply better during this time or if it was more difficult to escape is uncertain. If the risk of running away was too high, then a slave's only other option was to hope for manumission. In theory, a debt slave only had to pay off twice the value of his debt to go free, and while this may have sometimes occurred, it appears fairly rarely. Hammurabi's code has one provision in which a debt slave would work for three years and be released, but there are no documents in practice which suggest this was ever followed. For the most part, a slave was released only when the master developed a personal affection for the slave and decided to give him freedom as an act of kindness and respect. Not a completely unheard of scenario, but not an exceedingly common one either, and one even more rare for institutional slaves like those who served the palace or temple. Additionally, it was sometimes the case that a new king would announce a general release of certain classes of native-born slaves, and this may have been part of Hammurabi's debt cancellations in his first year and the year he conquered Larsa. For a foreign-born slave, however, prospects were much grimmer, since there seems to have been no formal means to set such a man free aside from the will of the master. 
Some modern scholars propose that the rate of manumission was just high enough to keep other slaves in line, hoping that they too could be set free. But others are skeptical that the institution of slavery was studied or managed to quite that degree in the Bronze Age. The other main class of people who were bought and sold as dependents of another person in Babylonia were women. There were exceptions, but for most women, they were property of their fathers until it was time to go be property of their husbands. Should her husband die, she would be dependent on her children, or if she had no children, on charity, or she would fall into harimutu status, about which more later. There is a lot of focus in the modern scholarship about when a woman could act independently, and about exceptional women who exercised some degree of personal power, but these were very much exceptions in the patriarchal Babylonian society. A woman kept the house. She cleaned the clothes, fetched and heated water, processed grain, cooked meals, sewed new clothes, raised the children, and, most importantly, gave birth. If the workload didn't keep her in the house most of the day, then societal expectations and risk of being beaten by her husband would. Many women engaged in small household industry, like beer brewing and home weaving, but by Hammurabi's time, the few women in the public workforce who had occasionally worked as crafters in older times and in Assyria have been pushed back into the domestic sphere or been replaced by female slaves. All in all, the rise of Amorite culture in Mesopotamia seems to have restricted a woman's opportunities even further than the already patriarchal societies of Akkad and Sumer had previously. A married woman's entire life was managing her husband's household and having between three to six children to survive to adulthood. In literature, a girl child's life was considered particularly idyllic a ceaseless frolic with other girls of about the same age. This, at least, was the opinion of the high-class men who did all the writing, even if some of those passages are put into the mouths of female characters. And it may well have been pleasant. We know that early childhood in general contained a fair bit of play and toys have been uncovered for both boys and girls. As the girl aged, she would start to be put to work, either taught explicitly by her mother or learning through observation and imitating her mother's social role. Between around 15 to 18, a young woman would begin to receive the interest of young boys. Virginity in young girls was not strictly required, but it was highly valuable, and being caught in a premarital dalliance could hurt a girl's value on the marriage market significantly. This, and many similar restrictions on a woman's behavior, was justified by the lack of paternity testing, and if a man could not be certain that he was the only one who had been with his wife, then he couldn't be sure that her children were his. This worry was apparently more important than a woman's autonomy, though interestingly, I'm not aware of any religious or philosophical works that explicitly put women in a lower status than men, though of course the idea is definitely implicit in nearly everything that compares the sexes. When a man becomes interested in a woman, he would approach the woman's father, or head male, and make an oral promise and negotiate a payment with the father. This was something of a trial period, not exactly like fiancé, but more restrictive than dating. 
should the woman be found with another man during the period, the prospective husband could break off the engagement and demand a return of the money, which would also likely ruin the girl's reputation as well for future suitors. When the marriage had become a sure thing in the eyes of both families, the girl would move into the groom's father's house. Upon either moving in or some time after, the actual wedding would take place, which seems to have been surprisingly informal. A feast would occur, or at least as much of a party as the husband's family could afford, during which a contract would be signed by both parties. There seems to have been written marriage contracts even when both participants were illiterate, as without one, the marriage was invalid and could be contested by outside parties. The vows were made before the gods, and there may have been prayers as well, though these don't seem to have followed a formalized pattern in all cases. At the wedding, or sometime around then, the bride's father would present her with a dowry, an amount of wealth and assets that would be hers personally, typically held in reserve for the day when her husband passed away or should the marriage fail. The dowry was considered sacrosanct, and in successful marriages was never touched, and would be passed on as the woman's bequeathment to her children. Finally, when all the merrymaking was finished, the other critical part of the marriage would take place in the bedchamber. It was assumed that both man and woman were virgin until this moment, but of course reality was sometimes different from theory. Not once have I mentioned the woman's consent in the marriage process, because, strictly speaking, it was never required. However, while this was the case formally, in practice we can see from letters and from observing arranged marriage cultures in our own days that most families were actually happy most of the time. Most marriages included love somewhere in the mix, and though children could be sold into slavery, only the most amoral or desperate parents resorted to that. Most families throughout history have looked quite similar, and it's generally thought of as a good institution. That said, when a marriage did fail, both parties could initiate a divorce in many circumstances with very little procedure required. There were both social and economic factors keeping an unhappy couple together, which weighed particularly on the woman, but the option was available and the institution of the dowry was specifically enacted to protect a woman in just such a circumstance. Further laws preventing a man from abandoning his wife, like when she contracts leprosy, gave a bit more protection because, in the end, while it was a patriarchal society, the Babylonians didn't hate women. They generally loved their wives, mothers, and daughters as much as we do today, and the restrictions placed on women were the result of a different set of ethical principles, economic conditions, and reproductive realities than we face today, not from hatred or cynically evil intent. Adultery, however, was looked upon with very little mercy. Hammurabi's code states that a woman caught in the act of adultery was to be put to death, along with the man she was sleeping with. However, we can see even within the code that this wasn't always done, since if the husband insists that his wife be spared from death, then the man, too, must go free. For a man, however, adultery itself was not inherently a crime, so long as it was done with an unmarried woman. While monogamy was generally practiced, a man was free to take a second wife. 
Mostly, this was among the upper classes, since supporting another dependent was economically difficult. But even among the lower classes, a second wife was encouraged in the case of childless marriage, though this was also grounds for divorce for a man who wanted to trade in one wife for another. Aside from formal wives, slave women were frequently purchased, and in many cases it's openly acknowledged that their chief role in the household is what are euphemistically termed wifely duties. Some of the most expensive slaves in the slave market records are slave women noted particularly for their beauty, and as a result of this, the resultant children and inheritance matters spawned a long list of laws in Hammurabi's code. Seriously, reading through those is the closest you will get to a Bronze Age episode of Mari. Interestingly, while in most cases a slave woman's child would itself become a slave, should the woman have a child with her master, and the master acknowledge the child as his own, which he was free to do or not do, then both woman and child would become free, sharing citizenship status with the master and becoming a bound concubine to the man. With a second wife, concubine, and slave girl, a household could grow terribly complicated. But Hammurabi's law is very clear that in most cases, the original wife retains a measure of legal primacy in the household. Still, Legal primacy is one thing, and actual social relations is another. And Babylonian writings are full of stereotyped jealous wives pecking and harassing the slave girls when they fear their husbands have come to favor the other women. These same writings typically portray the slave girls as lazy and indolent, relying on their favor with the master to escape more onerous household duties. It seems that a single income earner, multiple dependents, and a relatively large amount of money at the husband's control may have sometimes led to reality TV levels of domestic discord, no doubt fueling the neighborhood rumor mills for years on end. Not all women became wives, however, though surely the majority did live just as has been described. Some, as mentioned, were enslaved, and some slave girls would end up on large-scale state projects where, instead of being used primarily for reproductive and recreational purposes, they would undertake the tasks of a household, but for dozens or hundreds of male slaves. The women in these contexts would do laundry, sewing, cooking, and so forth in fairly large teams to allow the male laborer slaves to dig ditches or lay bricks for the entire day without interruption. Another option for women was the priesthood, where there were options ranging from very pleasant and prestigious jobs high in the temple administration for daughters of important families all the way down to what were essentially nuns who cooked and cleaned for the temple and were likely of less prestigious backgrounds. A religious position would either exempt or prohibit a woman from the duties of marriage, however you choose to see it, and even the menial tasks would enjoy a certain spiritual elevation and social prestige, simply from working directly for the god or goddess, and of course would be relatively stable forms of employment. We don't actually know too much about what the female priests did day to day, though. The last category of women were called Harimutu, a very poorly understood group. 
Traditionally, this word has been translated as prostitute, though there seems to be women's studies scholars who dispute this interpretation. This was a definite class of women, women who lacked anyone supporting them, no man, no slave master, and no temple. And as such, it's unclear how they were supporting themselves if not through renting their bodies, given the apparent lack of women in the trades or labor force in the old Babylonian period. I should perhaps be clear that these women, and women in general, had the same legal access to the courts that the men did, as well as full rights to own property and make contracts, and nothing explicitly prohibited them from acting as fully independent legal persons. That being said, we only have clear evidence of Harimutu taking up a single profession, the oldest of professions, and no clear idea what else they could have done given the social attitudes and economic realities they faced. One possibility is that some among their number practiced illicit witchcraft, though whether they were social outcasts because of their witchcraft, or if they turned to witchcraft as a profession available to an outcast, is unclear. For the most part, women, slaves, and the laboring classes are often hard to read about. After all, we know so little about many of the kings of the Bronze Age, it should perhaps be of no surprise that the illiterate underclasses are even more obscure. This podcast will continue to try and bring you as much about every layer of ancient Mesopotamian society as possible, but next week we will see a return to the very top of things, as we look through the final decade of Hammurabi's life. So join us next week as we lay the great King Hammurabi to rest and take a look at some of his final achievements and his enduring legacy. Thank you for listening.